0: Ahead is the full recording of a sermon and worship service at New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church in East Toledo, Ohio. We hope that you've chosen to listen to it because you believe that the Lord may speak to you through the sermon, through the message, and you want to have fellowship with God's people in this uh, technology-based way. We hope that as you listen, you will grow to new heights in Jesus. Thank you and God bless. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.
1: You will notice that there's no title up there for the sermon today. It's also not in your bulletin, because that is one of the things that I struggled with the most as I wrote this sermon. Um, and then I came up with the title, I believed I did it, in prayer meditation this morning, and it was the title was Shamelessly. So you may think about that title, meditate on it, think about that title as we look at it. But as I realized, and as uh, our sister shared this morning, I realized that it very easily could be, the title very easily could be, identity theft. Which is interesting. Um, why is it interesting? Because shame, not in a literal sense, not in your ident- somebody got a credit card in your name in another state, but shame will steal your identity in Christ. And we are called to live shamelessly. I don't want to dwell on it that second, but I do want to share with you the power of shame and how it at one point in time almost took my life. I was driving home from working at Radio Shack, and this is years ago, before I got saved, before I knew Jesus, before I really gave Jesus much thought. It was about 9.30, um, and I was driving with purpose, probably doing about between 65 and 70 miles an hour, Uh, Which I later discovered that 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 stretch of road was 55 about three weeks after I got a ticket for driving 65 there and I didn't realize it had changed to 55 there and I never even paid any attention. But I was driving about 65 mile an hour and uh, I was thinking not about where I was going or where I had come from but about an incident that had happened in my past. Something that I had said to somebody that I loved and it was a hurtful thing. And I got so wrapped up in the memory and I was feeling shame for what I had said, what I had done, that I had forgotten that I was driving. Uh, I liken it to like a traumatic flashback. Some people have traumatic flashbacks about incidents that they've gone through, and I think it was like that. And so I for the moment I didn't see the road. I didn't remember my hands were on the steering wheel or my my foot on the gas pedal. I was driving a stick shift, but I was in fifth gear, so I wasn't shifting, but I had my right foot on the gas pedal. I'm driving down the road, and it was raining, and it was cool outside, and just as I totally disembodied from driving the car because I was wrapped up in this moment of shame of what I had said and done to that person that I loved, um, I hit a patch of black ice on the expressway and I, I hadn't slowed down even though i was in a curve and so when i hit the patch of black ice the car immediately went into a spin and the car, the rear end of the car as i was going on the curve to the left the rear end of the car spun out and i and i was this whole time i'm still thinking about what i said and done to that person and when the car the back right bumper of the car hit the concrete median in the middle of the road that's when i woke up from my traumatic flashback and then the car, because it was, I was going so fast, the car hit the back right bumper, and then the car bounced off, and I spun around, and I began to, my driver's head training kicked into play, and I'm steering into the skid and trying to get the car under control. Well, it was so out of control that the back left part of the bumper then hit the median. So it went around, and the front right, back right of the car hit, and then back around again, and the left, and then I'm going down the road, and I'm fishtailing down the road at 60 mile an hour, and then 50, and so on, as I'm trying to brake, but not too heavily, and and steer, and finally I come resting to a stop at the right side of the road. What struck me as I rested to a stop at the right side of the road after, you know, that was a fishtail of probably a couple hundred yards more at least, and um, what struck me was that I did not remember how I got there. I did not remember how the skid began, I didn't remember hitting a patch of black ice, or losing control of the car, or doing anything at all to stop the loss of control of the car, before I first hit the median. And as a young person, I drove too fast. I got a lot of driving tickets. I was not living for the Lord at all. Um, and I, but I prized myself on being in control of the car. And so it baffled me. And then I realized and it came back to me as I'm sitting on the side of the road. People are waiting for me at my house. That's where I was driving to. And I'm sitting there and the rain's rolling down on the car and I'm on the side of the road. And I got out and I looked to see how bad the damage was. And the bumper was pushed over a foot. Uh, from, and it was from the initial impact. So it was actually to the left rear of the car. The bumper was pushed over about 10 inches to a foot. And I got out and I'm like, well, the car still drivable. That's good. And the whole time my mind is really, how did I get to the point where I'm about to die where I'm about to completely lose control of the car anyway, lose the car, possibly myself. And I didn't remember it. And it was then in that instant that it came back to me. And you know what happened? As I'm standing on the side of the road going, I could have lost my car, I could have lost my life, I had a flashback to that moment, the thing that I did, the thing that I said. Standing on the side of the road in the rain, the the way I had treated that person I loved came back to me again. Not, you know, and I mean, you'd be freaking out about the car, right? Freaking out, almost died, uh, whatever. And there were other cars on the road, so like I almost hit other cars the whole time I was in the skid and everything else. Um... But what was bothering me was the shame of what I had said and done, that going into that flashback had stopped me from taking any action to save myself. I want you to bear that in mind then as we look at the text today. We tend to get a little excited, say amen, if you're uh, with me today and you think that this is the text that God could use to change your not- life over the next half hour or so, would you say amen or something as we go to Joshua chapter 5? Amen. Thank you much. Thank you much. So this is Joshua chapter 5. Very, very quick recap. In 4, which we finished last week, and we actually read it twice because we used it the previous week as well. And I think RJ read some of it on the previous week. So for three weeks in a row, we looked at 4. But in there, God brought the Israelites across the Jordan River, which he parted the, the Jordan and the overflow for miles in, in, uh, from where they crossed. And they crossed, they came over, and they camped at Gilgal, And um, so the situation is good, if you will. Um, We talked last week about how God was on the verge of of freeing them from the captivity that they had experienced for the intervening 40 plus years. And uh, they've crossed the Jordan River and they're in in the promised land for the first time ever. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings, and this word, if you look at it in your translation and in mine, it says it looks like it's Amorites, and I have always pronounced it Amorites, but it's actually really more like um, uh, Amorites, which is I don't know why, but anyway, and the kings of the Amorites or the Amorites or Amrites or however you want to pronounce it, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. And so there's a couple of quick things I want you to see in that verse before we go any further. The first thing is, uh, they've crossed the Jordan and word travels. And so word travels around that they've crossed the Jordan. First, everybody's like, well, they're on the other side of the Jordan. It's really not a big problem. Now, whoa, the river parts, and they all come across. "Uh, Now we have a big problem. This huge Israelite army, uh, big in number, armed, not necessarily skilled in combat per se, like you might think, but they have trained up. They know what's coming. Um, And so... Everybody in the area, their hearts begin to crumble. Their spirit is broken. They realize God is doing this in them. And I'm looking for them to say that they've begun, in a sense, to fear God. But notice how the verse ends. It says, there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. And so, though God is the one who parted the waters, and back in chapter 4 we saw that, it, that, that, that God did all of this so that the people of the world would fear him, What does it say in verse 1 that the people of the the world fear? The Israelites. And that's interesting. For all the efforts of God to bring to himself the glory and to get the people of the world to recognize that they should fear him by parting the Jordan River so his army can cross, instead, they're thinking, but now we have an army. Remember last week how we talked about they crossed the Jordan River and then they looked at Jericho and they looked at the things were coming and they were a little afraid of what was coming? Well, the people see them cross the Jordan River, hear about it in the various fortresses across the land and things like that. And they, instead of fearing the one who can part the Jordan River, they fear the Israelites. And so I suggest to you that there is a common ground there between the people of the land who are looking at what lies immediately before them, the Israelites, and the Israelites themselves who are looking at the people of the land. And so uh, just bear that in mind. Verse 2 then it says... At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and, and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint kni- kni- knives, let me get that right, flint knives, and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Ha-Araloth. Ha-Ara, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. One second before we go to the reason, right, just so we're all on the same page. Predominantly, what we hear is have is an all male army. There may have been some female and support or like that, but basically, we're talking about the men of Israel coming across the Jordan to conquer the land. To circumcise is to slice the foreskin of the penis. To peel it back, it's painful. It's exhausting. There's a story in Genesis where a city does that in order to gain the favor of God's people and the people in the city were incapacitated for three or four days and during that time, two of the young men, two of Jacob's sons, go into the city and they kill every man. So it makes you unable to defend yourself. These are not kids. It's easier in children. Their healing, their pain, etc. It's different. But in men, it's incapacitating for three to four days. Now, understand the timing. They have just marched across the Jordan River, which was divided for them, and the people of the land are melting before them. What's their thought? What are we going to do now? Let's conquer. Let's do this. I'm thinking about the high school football game where... They, join, they, they gather together on the field right before the game and they're all going, yeah, 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 yeah. They're getting psyched up and they're pounding on each other's helmets and they're all, we're going to win this game. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And it's largely about morale. And the morale of the Israelites at this point in time is at an all-time high. They are ready to conquer the promised land. They have crossed the Jordan River. Yes, the enemy looms large before us, but as we saw, God is going to do this in us. God is going to use us to do this and they're psyched and then Joshua comes and says, okay, now we're all going to get circumcised. First of all, that's not what you're expecting. Secondly, that's not good timing. (laughs) Right? So, it must be good timing because it's when God decides to do it. But from our point of view, it's not good timing. If, if the football team gets together and they get stoked and they stu- study all the plays and like that, and then 15 minutes before the game, the coach says, we're all going to go out and run 10 miles before the game today. We're going to put ourselves through the ringer. I want you to all do at least 1,000 push-ups before the game starts. You're going, that's probably going to decrease our chances Of winning the game not increase a warm-up some exercises might increase but the slicing of the foreskin so that we're wiped out for three to four days this is not going to increase our chance of taking the promised land now it says they did this because so we're gonna get the reason and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them all the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised. But all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So these folks who came out, now we realize all of that generation died off in the wilderness because they came to the edge of the promised land in the first place, did not respond in faith to God. They wound up in the wilderness for 40 years. They died off in the wilderness, circumcised. God's people died off in the wilderness. By the way, on a little a side note, if that's not enough to tell you that works is not enough to become righteous, works is not enough to survive, I don't know what is. Now, it's not that we don't need works because he now commands them to be circumcised. So there is a purpose for it. But they were circumcised, called as God. People came out of Egypt. He led them out with a pillar of fire. He gave them the manna. He led them across the Red Sea. He conquered Pharaoh's armies. He did all of that in their name and then let them all die in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness. So these that are here, this huge army that's poised to take the promised land, they have not been circumcised. And notice that the reason why they must be circumcised is simply because they have not been circumcised. Right? That's the reason. The reason that he gives is because, because this huge batch of men, this army, has not been circumcised. That's interesting. There is no other reason given other than they must be circumcised. Verse 6 said, For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perish because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God had promised he would give them the land. They doubted God, they swayed, they were not faithful. They did not follow God in the way that they should have. And so they go into the wilderness and die off. But these, verse 7 says, And their children, whom he had raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised. The reason why he circumcised them? Because they were uncircumcised. Because they had not circumcised them along the way. Notice that they have done literally nothing wrong. I want to say to you that as, uh, you know, and I don't say this with any less love for God. I love God. I love living for God or whatever. But I think being circumcised as an adult male, uh, it's probably going to be more of a punishment than anything else. It feels like a punishment. It's enduring a punishment. Um, God has already brought us across the Jordan River. God has already claimed us for Himself. God has already promised to give us the land, and now we must be circumcised. And so the the tendency is to say, my tendency would be to say, well, what did they do wrong? What did they do wrong? Nothing. They're not being circumcised as a punishment. Circumcision is not a punishment. They didn't do anything wrong. However, notice that it was their fathers who failed to honor God and go into the land. Their fathers who died in the wilderness who failed to circumcise them along the way. There is no second generation faith. Your children do not become the children of promise because they are your children. They become the children of promise when they become God's children. So these men, though they are at the moment responding in faith, and though they are at the moment poised to take the promised land as God promised they would, and they, are, they seem to be, at least on the surface, believing God for his promises, they did not not circumcise themselves. Their fathers did not circumcise them. Circumcision was supposed to happen as a baby. Right. The command was to, give the, to do it as a baby. They didn't have any control over that. Now once you're a teenager, to circumcise yourself is virtually impossible. No one with anything less than a reckless psychology could do that. But you could allow yourself to be circumcised. You could be held down, strapped to a table. You could allow yourself to be strapped to the table. You could allow yourself to be held. You could allow it to happen to you. But if you resisted it happening to you and they were circumcising everybody, I don't think you'd survive the resisting of it. So it was the fathers of these They must now, essentially, if you would call it a punishment, which I don't think it's a punishment, but if you would call it that, you would say they were being punished for the sins of their fathers. Verse 7 again. And the children whom he raised up in their place Joshua circumcised for because they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now it came about when he had finished circumcising all the nation that they remained in their places in the camp Until they were healed. And so here's this huge army. By the way, if the um, Amorites or the Emirites or the Emirates, if they attacked at this time, how do you think that would have gone? With every adult male incapacitated from having been circumcised? They'd have been slaughtered. It would have been ugly. In fact, that's what happened back in the book of Genesis uh, when Jacob's sons slaughtered that entire town. But that is not what happens. It says, they rested until they were healed. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. This, passage, this piece of this passage of Scripture plagued my mind for the last five days or so. And I have studied and I have read what other teachers think about it. And I will share that with you in the points here in a moment. But um, the Lord laid on my heart a particular meaning for us today. Then, I think he did anyway, then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month of the desert plains of Jericho, on the desert plains of Jericho. So they observe the Passover. This, by the way, the Passover is the festival that honors what? They're being spared while they were in Egypt when God killed the firstborn sons of every family and they were spared. And what activity did they engage in to be spared? The blood of? The blood of a lamb, holy and pure. A picture of the sacrifice of Jesus. Right Now, they didn't necessarily know that, but we now know looking backwards through time that they, they are now celebrating the Passover, or you, you and I might say, the crucifixion and the resurrection. They are now celebrating the crucifixion and the resurrection, or at least the crucifixion anyway, and then upon doing so, let's finish that thought, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the fourteenth day of the month, on the desert plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land. Again, this is produce that they did not plant. They did not till the land. They did not haul the seed. They did not pull the weeds. And they're eating of that which is given by grace, by God to them. Unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land. So the next morning they go out and the manna is not on the ground. The what is it is gone. But they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. This huge army sustained itself now on what they had gathered. And then when that was gone on everything that was in the land. Okay. So there's a few things that we need to see in this text uh, the first one is a really neat saying. It, it makes me feel good when I just think about it. And it is how the enemies of God shake when they think of us. Now you know the New Testament says that our enemies are uh, not men. Not men with swords or guns. Not men uh, who live on our block. Not, not politicians, not police officers or criminals. right? Not men, not women, not human beings. But principalities and powers evil spirits and demons. And I, I'm fond of praying, rebuking evil spirits that are involved with certain activities. Um, and I know that there are people in the world who hate drug dealers, but you're, you're not supposed to do that. I know that there are people in the world who hate people who have molested their children, uh, but you're not supposed to do that. Now, it's wrong that they should do those things, and, and we should hate those things that they do, hate the sin, But they're people, and the truth is, they're people enslaved by evil spirits and demons that are involved with the activities that they're in. And so we need to realize that for us, those enemies shake. Now, What's neat is, they ought to shake, and they do shake, I'm sure, because of God and Jesus. Um, But I think of a moment when Jesus encountered a, a man who was infested, I use that term intentionally, with a bunch of evil spirits and demons. And uh, one of them cried out to Jesus and said, have you come to torment us before the time? Which is an interesting thing for him to ask, isn't it? Have you come to torment us before the time? You see, while demons and evil spirits are required to submit to God, the God of the universe and Jesus' son and the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, they know that their ultimate pain, their ultimate demise, the permanent casting away from God will not happen until the day. However, God has invested that same authority in certain people who are Christian men and women, old enough to understand, and they can bring that authority of God to bear not on that day, but on this day. So just as... The people of the land, when they heard that God's people had come over, they feared God's people. Because who was it that would bring to bear the power of God? For over 400 years, the people who were living in the land had invested themselves so heavily in worshiping evil spirits and idols they were burning their firstborn children in the fire in tribute to the god Molech. And they've been doing that for over 400 years. And the god of the universe had not crushed them in that time. He had not destroyed them. He had not wiped them out, even though they knew. Let's not kid ourselves. We talk about, well, they were pagan. They didn't know. Oh, no, they knew. They are descendants. You can trace uh, Canaan is a, defend- a descendant of Ham, who was a descendant of Noah, and they knew their, their descendant, and they knew they were cursed, but they also knew that they had a choice to make about who to follow. And so over 400 years they have been doing this, and God allowed it. Let's be very realistic. He allowed it, and he allowed his people to be in Egypt for that same 400 years, and then to wander in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness for another four years. And meanwhile, the people of the land were still engaging in these evil activities wrapped up with evil spirits and demons. And so when the people of Israel crossed the river, they saw those people as bringing the wrath of God. Because God was allowing them to persist. And the fact is, that's that's a pretty accurate vision of what was happening. If God's people had been unfaithful again when on the edge of the Jordan, do you think God would have brought them across? if they had had the same faithlessness that their previous generation had had, God would not have brought them across because he didn't the first time and God never changes. And so he wouldn't have brought them across. And so they could now say that the Israelites, God's people, God's people of promise, were bringing the wrath of God into the promised land. And this is the way that demons and evil spirits feel about a Christian who loves the Lord, who is walking in the light, who is honest about their shortcomings, who is humble about their nature, and is allowing God to refine them, or as we heard in the inspirational moment, to equip them for the calling that they have been given. Some years ago, I visited a man who called me in a panic on the church phone. We've had the same church phone number for years, and when I'm not in my office, it's forwarded to my cell phone and this is 15 years ago or whatever, and he called me up and he said, please, please come, I'm begging you, my house is infested with some kind of evil spirits, demons, or ghosts, I think it may be the ghost of my dead wife, and I sat in his living room, I heard his story, and he said his wife had literally drunk herself to death in the living room chair. She had um, cirrhosis of the liver from drinking, and they told her she was not a, a candidate to get a new liver, and she kept drinking. She was drinking and drinking, so she would drink until she threw up blood and then she would drink to forget that she threw up blood. And then she would drink until she threw up blood. And eventually, after a few months, he said, she died. They rushed her off to the hospital to try to save her one last time and they failed and she died on the way to the hospital or at the hospital. Whatever. He said, since then, my house has been infested with a ghost, an evil spirit, whatever. And he told me that the kind of things were happening. I when I sat there and, and, and as I am accustomed to doing, I took one of our church members with us and uh, and we prayed outside that we would not be, you know, attached by evil spirits or take them home to our family. And then we went in and as we walked in, I felt a, an evil presence of a sort. And I prayed immediately and, it, and everything calmed down. And then we prayed with him and I shared the gospel with him and he did not accept Jesus. And I said, well, you know, that's your choice. And you can't accept Jesus just to get the power to re- re- evil spirits. But realize once I leave, there's no telling how long it's going to be before you have problems again. And he said, I, I can't accept Jesus. He said, I, I'm Muslim, and, I, and I, just, um, I would be disowned by my family, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, Okay, well, um, you know, I can't. I just when it starts up again, realize God has the power. Look to Jesus. And he said, Okay. About two weeks later, he called me up, and he said, It's back, and it's worse than ever. And I said, Well, I, I, you know, I, I hate to say I told you so, but this is where I thought we were. He said, Please, please come. So this time I took back a man whom I knew was a professing Christian who had been involved with the Muslim faith. So we sat with him and we prayed rebuking we sat with him, and, and by the time we were done with that conversation, he was able to say, "This man, you're not a Muslim. I know you're not a Muslim. I can tell you're not a Muslim. So why are you saying you are?" And he admitted he was not a Muslim. He was using that as an excuse not to come to Christ. He was deathly afraid, and, but still would not accept Jesus in that conversation. And I said, well, you know, I can't, I can't keep coming back because every time I leave and come back, it's just going to keep getting worse. And I know, you know, it's my job to be people's spirits, but I can't live with you here, so you're going to have to deal with it. And he said, it's okay, I, you know, I'll take my chances. So we left, and I didn't hear from him for a couple months. And what had happened was, a little while after we left, a man moved in who was a Christian. And when he moved in, everything stopped. It, it had already stopped, and it didn't start again. It didn't come back. It stopped when we prayed, and it didn't come back again. He lived there for a while, the man did, and then he went on vacation. He left, and while he was on vacation, it started up again. All the weird things were happening, the feelings, the noises in the house, everything like that started up again. But then the man came back from vacation, and it all stopped again. This guy's a professing Christian. It all stopped again. But he told him, so I'm moving out. He said, I'm moving out in a week or two or whatever the time frame was, so he moved out. As soon as he moved out, the very next night, it started up again. Worse than ever. And he's a, this guy's afraid for his life now. So I took a man with me, we went, we sat down with him. I took the same one I took the middle time. And then we sat down and he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And the evil spirit never came back. Now, I'm not saying to you if you're in this room and you're not a Christian that you need to accept Jesus Christ in order to be able to rebuke evil spirits, although that is true. I'm not saying to you that you need to do it so that you can gain that ability or because you want that ability. But here's a fact. He who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And he that is in the world is Satan and evil spirits. And as a Christian, you have that power. And they tremble before you that you should bring it to bear. The fact that you have not brought it to bear, the fact that you have not rebuked evil spirits and demons, is much to their delight. They'll back into corners. They'll hide under people's personality traits and things like that when you come so that you won't happen to notice that they are there. But you have the power to rebuke evil spirits. You have the power to overcome demons. It's not you that has the power, but God in you. You can bring to bear the power of the God of the universe and you are required to bring to bear the power of the God of the universe. However, you are also required to know that it is his power. And we come to the second point in this sermon. The first one is, notice how our enemies shake before us just as their enemies did. They see them coming and shake and our enemies are the same way. Don't let them get away with shaking and hiding. You go find them, root them out, and send them away. The second thing I want you to see in here then is that point about the reproach rolled away. I think it's interesting, the language that's used here. Um, If I said to you there's a boulder on the floor and uh, we're going to move the boulder and it's this big, what would you picture in your mind? That we're going to pick it up and move it or that we're going to roll it if it's this big? Pick it up, right? Ron and I are going to move the boulders. Oh, well, they're going to pick it up. You might go, why are Ron and Dan going to move the boulder? That's kind of a small boulder. you know. Why do you need to do that? But if I said to you that we're gonna, Ron and I are going to move the boulder and the boulder is this big now you're thinking we're going to roll it. What is so big that God rolls it away? It's interesting language, isn't it? He would roll away the reproach of Egypt. What is reproach? Well, reproach is when someone looks down on you or has scorn for you or talks badly about you and they're right. That's what reproach is. It's when someone sees you and thinks you're no good and they're right. Or at least what they're saying is gaining traction. It's taking hold. It's having an effect. It's not immediately going away. Uh, if someone would have said about me when I was 20 years old, he's a liar, they would have been right. Now, I would have resisted it. I would have fought against it. But the fact is, I would have slaved away under the reproach of being a liar because I was a liar. If they had said I was a thief, well, I was a thief. I would have resisted it. I would have maybe tried to convince them otherwise. But the fact is that I was a thief. So when you see this phrase in the Bible here, That God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from, from you. God said that to Joshua and to the people of God. Theologians debate, and this is what they debate. They debate, is it A, the reproach of having been a slave in Egypt? So the fact that the world sees them as slaves, sees them as next to nothing, doesn't think they're important. And so God is elevating them to a point that the world will be forced to think that they're important. That's one way that people tend to see it. (coughs) The second way that people kind of argue then is that God is undoing or... Pulling back the rumor, the knowledge that has traveled throughout the world that these people, the Israelites, are cast-offs. They have nowhere. They were in Egypt, and now they're nowhere. I kind of like that one, and it ties in with what I think God was trying to share. And then the third way is that... Moses prayed a number of times. He prayed prayers in, um, in Exodus 32 and Numbers 14 and in Deuteronomy 9 about how if God brought them out of Egypt and then destroyed them in the wilderness, the Egyptians would laugh at God and they would scorn God. But that's more like the reproach of God in Egypt to a degree. Not so much the reproach of God's people, but that's one other possibility. And those are the three main pathways that people go when interpreting this. And after prayer, I feel like what God was saying, I'm going to illustrate it for you. You know that it was big news when the Israelites left Egypt. Pharaoh and his army and all of his best men who were assigned to chariots chased the Israelites into the Red Sea. And then they were all destroyed. And every man, woman, and child knew that God, or a God, the God of the Israelites, had destroyed the greatest part of their army. <coughs> Everyone knew. It. Six months later, on the streets of Egypt, you might hear it's 7 o'clock, it all's well. In recent news, the Israelites have encamped by Sinai. No sign of their returning to Egypt. Our economy is beginning to recover. Everyone has food, Blah a lot of the news, right? Five years later, you get seven o'clock and all's well. The Israelites are still wandering in the wilderness. They claim their God is watching over them. They claim their God is taking care of them, but they're still wandering in the wilderness. And maybe eight years, ten years later, the Israelites who fled Egypt still have not come into the land, but at 15 years later, it doesn't make the news. God's people are essentially forgotten, wandering, they have no home, and when they came out of Egypt... By the way, don't kid yourself, the 10 plagues that God unleashed in Egypt, you can trace every single one of them to a false god in Egypt, including the last one. They believed Pharaoh was a god, and Pharaoh's son died in that plague. And who was a god? By their beliefs. God was destroying every other god. He made sure that Pharaoh waited until the last minute so every god of the Egyptians, everyone that had any power in their minds, had been destroyed. And so God had done everything that it took to prove that he was the God of the Israelites, he was the only God, he was the God of power, and so on. And now, 45-ish or whatever, 40-some years later, that's all gone. They still remember the horrible times of the Israelites leaving, but it's all gone. And so when God says, after the circumcision of the Israelite army, when he says, I have now rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and the reproach is that scorn or that shame that was on them. They were not in Egypt because they did something wrong. They were in Egypt waiting for the Canaanites to finish doing something wrong. And now this circumcision marks the day at which they will be God's people in God's land and by the way, what was the task that they were supposed to do? Point everybody on the earth to God. That as they were lifted up, God would lift them up. If you're following along in your Bible, on this point I want to read a, a quick passage in the New Testament. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2. So you're going to go all the way to the right in the New Testament pretty much. 1 Peter chapter 2. Ah, let's see, I'll begin... In verse 7, or targeting verse 10. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And in these verses, Peter is talking about the way the identity now of God's people they were slaves in Egypt with no land no name no title no power no significance really but now he's called them out and called them over called them into the promised land called them to be a people with the purpose to point out his excellencies the circumcision was the ritual to mark to whom they belong We belong to God. It was an ordeal. I'll give you that. But they were marked... By the way, when a man walks around or when a man comes out in his battle armor, do you know if he's circumcised or not? No. 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 So, to whom did the circumcision testify that they belonged to God? God God knows whether you belong to God or not. not. To themselves. To themselves. To themselves. Now if they now you're right if they had declined to be circumcised they would have been refusing to be recognized in themselves as the people of God right so they had to go through the process in order for that to be true but Having gone through the process, and it is now true, they now know beyond a shadow of a doubt, inside their armor, inside their underwear, they know to whom they belong. In their their most private and intimate moments, they know to whom they belong. They are gods. And there's no shame in belonging to the God of the universe. There's no shame in belonging to the God of the universe when the skin is being filleted off your back by a whip. There's no shame in belonging to the God of the universe when the gun is to your head. There's no shame in belonging to the God of the universe when you have done the worst of things and you look back on it and you you could get wrapped up in it. You could get stuck there. No, there's no shame in belonging to the God of the universe because as messed up as you might be, you are a child of God and you've been called to declare His excellencies with your voice, with your actions, with your choices there is no shame we now live shamelessly because we belong to God and if the armies had come to destroy them while they were laying their sick and their circumcision it would not have been a slaughter except that God would have slaughtered the armies that came we think in our weakest moment in our darkest hour and the dumb things that we do, that we should bear the shame and guilt of that. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I feel horrible. No! There is now, therefore, no more condemnation in Christ. Not because we are special, but because He chose us, those who had not received mercy, we have now received mercy. God rolled away the reproach of Egypt And they would now be known as God's people. And the same is true for you and the same is true for me if we have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Would you get down on your knees on a dirty floor and scrub a toilet with a caulk around the toilet where almost assuredly it's leaking? Would you humble yourself to the most obnoxious service if God called you to do it? Or would you say, well, God would never call me to do that. God has lifted me up. He has risen me above others. I am now a child of God. I am too big, too good, too powerful. God is in me. God would never call me to do the shameful thing. God called his son to be scorned in front of men and women. And he calls us to do the same. It holds you back from talking about the excellencies of Jesus. Is it because you look back at your life and you say, you know, if God is so good, if God is for me, then why did I go through that dark period? If that's one of the things that holds you back, then your your theology is messed up. Yeah. Is it because so-and-so won't like what you have to say? If you're not ready to be attacked verbally and even physically, if necessary, for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, then your theology is messed up. You have a wrong picture of God. We are the front edge. We are the fighting force. We are the ones pushing into the darkness. We act like we are a beacon of light and those in the darkness should come to us. And I agree with that. It would be great if they do. They will learn about Jesus. They will learn about God. And they they would potentially be set free. But I submit to you, if we are just a beacon of light summoning them out of the darkness, then there's a good probability that we're not set free. We are going into the darkness and carrying the power of God to overcome evil spirits and demons wherever they may be. And if you stand at the line and just past the line is darkness and you look into the darkness and say, come to me. and you Maybe stick your hand out. say, Come to me. Guess what's going to happen? Nobody's going to come. I can't see you. You say, well, they'll, they'll come to the sound of my voice. That's a very courageous argument you're making there. Why don't you just take the gospel into the darkest places of the earth and tell them about Jesus? And some will listen and some won't, and I get that, but those that do will be saved for an eternity and they too will become free from the reproach of Egypt. No more shame. One more thing. As we're talking about freedom, you notice that they came into the promised land, now God's people, now shown mercy, never having been, now... Being called in the promised land and across the river Jordan, knowing to whom they belong, on the offset of their great victory, they will conquer the enemies of the Lord. That is obvious now to them. And in that moment, they're asked to be circumcised. And then the very, you know, three, four days later, as soon as they recover and they're healthy again, they the manna stops and God stops feeding them for free. And then they get the produce of the land, which for a while is free. Essentially, it's taken from the enemy and given to them. That's grace. But then now what? The next season, you have to plow. The next season, you have to plant. You have to bear, carry around the seed. You have to do all of that work. They were free to work, which makes them free to give. In Ephesians 4, there's a little, just a tiny, tiny verse that might even kind of go unnoticed there. In Ephesians 4, if you're following along, you go right ahead and then you can note it later or take notes on it. Ephesians 4 now, I'm targeting verse 28. I'll, I'll begin in 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer. But rather, let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need In the middle of that passage of Scripture, out of that comes the doctrine, and Paul will elsewhere say, you know, if he doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Which is pretty extreme. As a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God, we are free. Yes, free. Which means if you truly are in the kingdom of God, you are free to work or to not work. That's your choice. Except that your choice should always be to work. You're free to work, to do the work of the kingdom. To be a gospel bearer and so much more. To manage the resources that God has given you so that you can be a blessing to other people. Amen. We're supposed to be giving, kind, serving, loving, merciful toward others because we have received mercy. If you're wrapped up and worried about how to get that thing, how to solve that problem, your your theology is messed up. Your focus is wrong. You need a circumcision. A circumcision of the heart, perhaps. Yeah. Yes. Because your job is not to solve your problems. We covered that last week with the manacles. And I kept them up here, right? What's the first thing you do when you get one hand out of the manacle? The first thing you do is thinking about getting the other one out, right? That's messed up theology. God has solved all of your problems already. Amen. And brought you across the Jordan into the promised land. If you're saved and give you power over your true enemies so much so that they are trembling to think that you might actually engage... And he has rolled away the reproach from you. If you realize you're called to be a people set free, shamelessly living out your lives. Yes, I screwed up. Yesterday, I screwed up. An hour ago, I screwed up. And you don't have time or energy or reserve of your self-conscious to sit and dwell on what you did that was wrong. You repent, turn back to God, let Him forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness and live for the Lord again today, shamelessly, this hour, shamelessly, forward we go, carrying the gospel, forward we go, rebuking the enemy, forward we go, running over top of evil spirits that would try to slow us down. The fact is the enemy had us. He had us right where he wanted us. And we were brought out, now free, we wander in the wilderness until we die. No, we are not that generation. We're not the generation that was brought out, now free, and wanders in the wilderness until we die. We are the generation that masters the promised land. We are the people who live according to what God would have us to do and... Bring his truth and his power to bear against his enemies. I know we are not yet home. I understand that there will be challenges between here and that moment at which Jesus comes again. And so does he. And we ought to proceed shamelessly overcoming those challenges one after another after another. Notice that they were finally a unified people. Together they knew that they would conquer the promised land. Together they were circumcised. Together they they ate of the produce of the land. They were finally an obedient people doing what God had told them to do at much cost to themselves. Nothing compared to the cost that God would pay, but at much cost. And they were willing and they were forward-facing. But notice how it was God that rolled away the reproach, not their circumcision, Not their choice to be obedient or their willingness to keep their promises as with the tribes who crossed the Jordan even though they would not reside there. But in God's provision, no shame. Weak for three to four days down in bed because you had your foreskin and your penis nipped. No shame. Strapped to a table screaming like a little girl while someone took a flint knife to your most private parts. No shame. Were you present with the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you? If he died for you, you died. No shame. Don't think that the enemy will not continue to try to shame God's people. Don't think that there won't be those who won't talk and make even a fairly convincing argument for why following the Lord is foolish. If you need some kind of a defense, I want you to think about how they're going to feel on the day they stand before Jesus. But you don't actually need that. You just need to know to whom you belong and in which kingdom. And go forward. Unified and obedient. Go forward. Know that we all have shame. We all have had shame. And it's a big burden to bear the things that you did that you never should have done. And he does not intend for you to bear it. He will roll it away himself if you allow it. Our enemies shake before us. The reproach has been rolled away from us. We are free to work and to give, to be love bearers, to be unified and obedient and willing in the church, forward facing to conquer the land for Jesus. And then, by way of conclusion, we are free, free from shame. Free to work, free to give, unified, organized, and one more word I really like, unstoppable. Except, when I look at the church sometimes, that's not the way I see people behaving. I see people indulging in activities of this world trying to make them feel better about what they've done in their past and you don't need that. In fact, to have that is about the worst thing you could do for yourself. Yes. Because you don't need to forget. You don't need to struggle to forget. It's been rolled away. You ought to remember the burden of your shame and how bad it was. And now being set free, how much more that motivates me to want to work. Being a liar, how much more it motivates me to be set free from that and want to tell the truth. Being a manipulator of people, how much more I am motivated when I would get out of bed in the morning, I would say, you know, I wonder if people are going to figure out who I am. wonder if I'm going to figure out who I am. And then in Christ, we have an identity and we have figured out who we are and we move forward shamelessly, God's people, free, free from shame, free to work, free to give, unified, organized and unstoppable.
2: Amen.
1: And that's what they become. Because God rolled away the reproach. Because God told them what to do and they did it. And their enemies were terrified before them and ours are terrified before us. But the enemy will continue to try to use shame to stop us. Yes. You're waiting for God to squash the enemy, right? That's what you're waiting for. Well, this is how God does that. He empowers you with his Holy Spirit, and then you go squash the enemy. Yes. Amen. That's how it's done. You go tell people about Jesus. You go live like that before the world. You go give. You go serve. You go die if necessary so that people can be saved. That's how God does it. And if you're doubting in any way, shape, or form that that's how God does it, I want you to look at the life of Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, and look at how he did it. The closest he ever came to doing it another way was probably when he cleared the temple. And it seems like from the outside and the enemy would say that the next day maybe he got out of bed and said, yeah, maybe I was a little hard on those guys. But that's not what we see. We see him getting out of bed and serving the Lord again, right up to and including the cross, right up to and including the grave. He bore the shame that was doing. Will you do the same? It's time. We realize and progress forward shamelessly. You don't have to be thinking about those things. You have to be thinking about what you're supposed to be doing in Christ. living. God. You were not a people. You did not know his mercy, but now you do. We look around this room, we are so unique and different, and yet, we can be unified. We can be free together to work and to share and to love. And to defeat the enemy at every turn. And if you need this word of encouragement, realize he is terrified that you will actually do what you've been called to do. Let me pray for you, and then we'll have a word of it is about making the choice to live freely for God, doing the work that God would have you to do, to give, to love, to serve, to be merciful, to be unified and go forward. All these things are what the church is supposed to be about and do. But realize that when you, you can honestly say when you do something that's wrong, that that was a mistake. Now, if you don't then pray and go back to the Lord, let the Lord forgive it and move you forward from there, that's not a mistake. That's an intentional choice. Yeah. Okay? So that's the difference between an accident and an incident, right? So you didn't have, if you don't go back to God afterwards, you didn't have an accident, you had an incident. And you want all of our sin, all the things that we do when we realize we're going to go back to the Lord immediately, oh, screwed up. You're not saved, unsaved, we're not playing that game. But you go back to the Lord, oops, screwed up, and let him turn. And then you don't have to have any shame. That's where the freedom is in it. And God cleanses us and sends us forward shamelessly. I just wanted to share that in case. Also, I would give you this word of encouragement. Don't make something to be a sin that's not sin. Don't beat yourself up over something that you do that you go, I don't like that. But the truth is, it wasn't sin. Well, you know, it wasn't anything against God or whatever. Don't do that either. Don't feel shame where there's no shame to be had. Right? We are shamelessly moving forward in the Lord. Do what you know to be right. When you don't, turn that over to God and realize that wasn't you, but sin in you. Assuming you're saved, assuming He is Lord and Savior, then when you make your mistakes, you do what you shouldn't do, um, then that's not. You—that's not your choice—but sin in you, and distance yourself from it as best you can. Okay. So I want to give you that little bonus message. So they are how to be, how to live shamelessly when you know you did something wrong. Turn it over to God and say that wasn't me. I don't want to be that person. I know who I want to be in the Lord, and move forward shamelessly. Okay. I hope that made sense. All right. So we're going to click, uh, pray in closing, and then we're done. I do want to remind.
0: Thank you for listening to all or a portion of this full-length New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church worship service. New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church is located in East Toledo at 255 Hefner Street four three six zero five. If you'd like to reach out to the church, our phone number is 419-469-8808. Our website is newheightsfellowshipchurch.org where you can find lots more information about the church, its connections, and How to give. You may you can mail uh, information to the church at the address two five five Hefner 43605. You can also give to the ministry in some way if you wish by texting G-I-V-E. G-I-V-E to 419-419-0095. If you'd simply like more information and updates about the ministry, you may text I-N-F-O to that same phone number, 419-419-0095. If you'd like to partner with the ministry in some way other than financial, you may text P-A-R-T-N-E-R, the word partner, to 419-419-0095.